Please remain standing as we read from God's inspired word as we find it in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verses 7 to 21. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, the words we just read point us to a number of situations where we are walking in darkness. We just read that the days are evil and we see this on the domestic scene and we see it both in the Ukraine and the Middle East. We see this in broken relationships, even here at home. And that is not your will for us, as we are to be children of light. Holy Spirit, will you guide Pastor Michael as he shares with us what you laid on his heart this week, so we can leave here after the service understanding what you will is for our lives. And this I pray in the name of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, Christ Church. Good morning. I am uh, Michael Anderson, one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good to be back with you. Uh, Jen and I were in Nashville uh, over the past week, and it's good to be back, and it's a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Today we're looking at what it means to be high-contrast Christians, high-contrast being the difference between light and darkness. And when I was thinking about that, it may seem odd, the thing that came to mind was... Uh, I don't know if you ever have those times in your life where you remember 
something very strange, but nothing else around it. For me, that was going to the movie theater with my parents and seeing the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, when I was younger. And I don't remember a lot of the plot. I do remember smashing the dishes and opa, but the thing I remember randomly is that there was one scene in the movie where it was very dark, and then all of a sudden the next scene was very bright, and it shocked me. And I, like I never recovered during the rest of the movie. I didn't enjoy the movie because of that. It was very strange. But I think whether it's like that or some other way, we all know the impact that bright light can have in the midst of darkness. And that's the prevailing metaphor that carries through our passage today. Our passage flows out of the beginning of Ephesians 5 that Pastor Andrew preached on last week. That the beautiful fragrance of Christ's sacrificial love for us compels us to imitate him. Instead of settling for these counterfeit versions of sex and impure speech. We're called to something much better. So that's where our passage today picks up. I invite you to follow along uh, in Ephesians 5. There's also an outline in your bulletin that you can follow along with. Um, since we've experienced the death of Christ on our behalf, which moves us, as we just read in our assurance of pardon, it moves us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. Because of that, we can't be partners of darkness any longer. That's what verse 7 says in our text. Now look with me at verse 8. It says, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Our passage today, like the book of Ephesians as a whole, starts with this glorious reminder of foundational gospel truth, the indicative. And then it calls us to live into and out of that truth, the imperative. Most, uh, most of our time is going to be looking at the imperative, how uh, we are going to walk as children of light. But first, we need to start with the gospel foundation. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The phrasing here is really interesting. Typically when we think of our life before Jesus, we think of being in darkness. And that's fair. Scripture talks about it that way at times. But here it doesn't say that we were in darkness. It says that we were darkness. That means that life apart from a saving relationship with Jesus is so characterized by spiritual darkness that it can be your very identity. To put it another way, how you relate to Jesus is the single most important thing about you. It's the difference between pitch black and blinding light, and it changes the way that you relate to everyone and everything else. But Paul says, but now you are light in the Lord. The phrase in the Lord is important because it means that we don't make ourselves light. It's our union with Christ, our inseparable, irreversible connection with him through trusting in what he did for us on the cross. Jesus alone moves us from death to life, from guilty to forgiven, from slaves to sin to becoming the righteousness of God, from darkness to light. That is the foundational gospel truth that leads us to how we should live. 
And so we're called to walk as children of light. So we are light, and we're to walk as children of light, meaning that God is light and we are his children. We reflect the light of God. And yet, right now, we are light in the Lord. So this, you are light and walk as children of light, it reflects justification and sanctification, the already and the not yet. We have our current identity, who you are right now, is wrapped up in Christ if we're in union with him. We are light. That's justification, adoption, identity. And we're called to live more and more into that identity. We're called to reflect God's character as we learn to love God's law as we walk as children of light. Our Christian identity fuels our everyday Christian living. So because you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. How do we do that? That will be our three points today. Because you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light by exploring what pleases God, exposing works of darkness, and exercising wisdom from the Spirit. So first, walk as children of light by exploring what pleases God. Look back with me at verses 9 through 10. Verse 8 ends with walk as children of light. And now verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When we were darkness... When we were spiritually dead, we were unable to please God. But now, everything has changed. Our first calling here as children of light is to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Why? So that we can know it and do it. God doesn't call us to go on a wild goose chase. We're called to discern what pleases God because we are now light and we have the ability to actually please God not perfectly but partially because there's still indwelling sin in us but progressively more and more over time as the spirit works in us we're actually able to please God when we think of discerning what's pleasing to the Lord what comes to mind Typically, for many of us, this command to discern what pleases God, or later in the passage it describes it as understanding the will of the Lord, this command actually produces a great deal of anxiety. Maybe even decision paralysis. How can I know what God's will is for my life? Is it this job or that job? Is it this school or that school? Is, it, is there some secret thing that God is telling me that I'm going to miss, and if I miss it, then my life's going to get off the tracks of the train and I can never recover. We have this anxiety with the will of the Lord. We have a genuine desire as God's children to glorify him with our lives, but we get stuck worrying about things, even important things. But discerning what pleases the Lord, understanding God's will, isn't about cracking the secret code of everyday decisions. It's about knowing the heart of God through his word. 
God has already told us what pleases him. It's what verse 9 calls the fruit of light. All that is good and right and true. What pleases God is heartfelt obedience to his word. What pleases God is loving him with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. What pleases God is, to, is coming to him in repentance for your sins instead of running from him and hiding in shame. Nine times out of ten, it's not difficult to know what pleases God. It's right there in his word. The difficult part is actually doing it. But allowing God to change what we love shapes how we act so that our lives come into alignment with God's character. That's the will of God. So why did I say in this section that we should explore what pleases God instead of discern? The text uses the word discern. Well, partly because I needed the alliteration to make my three points work. But also because usually uh, we forget that there's actually a positive aspect to pleasing God. We often think of it negatively. I don't want to displease God to go against his will. But what if we took an attitude of exploration? I love God and I want to know him more and more. I want to know what pleases him. I believe that his way is actually best. That it's good and right and true. That Christian ethics aren't oppressive but actually freeing. So instead of operating out of fear and anxiety, I can joyfully explore God's word. I can know him more and more through study and prayer and Christian community. Children of light can and should explore what pleases God. And through his spirit, we can actually begin to do it. That brings us to our second point. Because you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light by exposing works of darkness. Exposing works of darkness. Look with me at verse 11. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We're met right away with a series of contrasts. Just like light in the previous verse is said to have fruit, all that's good and right and true, darkness has unfruitful works or anti-fruit. What's the opposite of good and righteous and true? Bad and wicked, and deceptive. How should children of light relate to the unfruitful works of darkness? By taking no part in them. The image that comes to mind for me is a, a, a bowl of fruit on a table, and someone grabs an apple and takes a bite out of it and realizes that it was a bowl of wax fruit. And it's disgusting. There's nothing good in it for you. Don't eat the wax fruit. That's how we relate to the anti-fruit of darkness. But we're not just called to not partake. We're supposed to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. So this dual task, don't partake but expose, gets Christians into two kinds of errors in relating to the works of darkness. Isolation and assimilation, right? So the air of isolation 
puts all the emphasis on not partaking in the works of darkness. It says, okay, if I'm not supposed to take part in darkness, then I should stay as far away as possible from sin and from sinners. This leads to cultural retreat. And as well-intentioned as it may sound, it actually operates out of fear. The fear of being corrupted by culture and pulled back into darkness. It's good to be aware that we still have remaining sin in us. The darkness, darkness is still a temptation. But we can't let that keep us from actually interacting with the people who are still stuck in darkness, who don't yet trust Jesus. That's what Jesus says in many places, but in particular, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember he talks about light? He says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people hide a light under, uh, hide a light, hide a lamp, and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have a mission, the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. Jesus came not to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. We cannot fall victim to the error of isolation. But on the other hand, assimilation goes into culture with the intention of exposing the works of darkness, but over time forgets that we still have remaining sin in us that makes us susceptible to falling back into our old ways. Sometimes it's intentional through hypocrisy, like the politician who builds his campaign on family values all the while he's secretly feeding a sexual addiction. But other times it happens more subtly through what I call nose blindness. Have you ever walked into a room that has that like funky locker room smell and at first it's overwhelming but then you're in there for a little bit and you forget about it and it takes someone else coming in and saying, why does this room reek for you to realize, oh, there's actually like a smell in here and you have to step out to get reacclimated. Over time, if we're not fixed on God's word, we can lose sight of what darkness actually is. Come, come, become nose blind to it. So how do we as children of light expose the works of darkness without falling into the errors of isolation and assimilation? Well, here are a few things to keep in mind. First... Uh, scripture teaches us that we need to have both active and passive exposure. Active and passive exposure. Here's what I mean by that. Passive exposure is what Jesus is talking about in, this, in the section we just read from the Sermon on the Mount. Simply by existing as light in the midst of darkness, we shine a light on darkness. Light cannot help but shine. In other words, simply by being a Christian and living like a Christian in our homes, in our jobs, our schools, our coffee shops, our social media pages, simply living like a Christian in those areas will shine a light on darkness. 
People who are curious about Jesus or whose hearts are hardened to Jesus will see that there is something different about us. When we are the ones who are quick to ask for forgiveness and to extend grace to others, people will notice. When we're not desperate for the approval of others because we're firmly rooted in our identity in Christ, people will see that there's something different. Imagine an older Christian couple who's been married for 50 years and they befriend their young neighbor. And as they get to know her, they see her cycle through a series of hookups and failed relationships. Over time, as she's watching them, she becomes curious and asks, how in the world are you able to stay married for so long? What's the secret? Through passive exposure, they've shined the light on a better way that piques the curiosity of their neighbor. And then it gives them a chance to speak about the faithful covenant love of Jesus. Are you living an intentionally Christian life in your spheres of influence? That's passive exposure. But active exposure means that there are times where light has to call out darkness. There are times when we need to speak the truth about dark things so that they can be brought into the light. But how does that work with verse 12 in our passage? Look at verse 12. It says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Okay? Shameful to speak about them, yet we're supposed to call out darkness. Well, verse 12 isn't saying that Christians have to be oblivious to sin, to not use the words that name darkness like abuse or exploitation or pornography. Verse 12 is highlighting that we shouldn't talk about things that break the heart of God as if they're no big deal. But we're called to call out darkness so that it can be brought to light. Look at verse 13. It says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. We're called to shine light on darkness. But a few more things to keep in mind when doing that. Uh, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has his famous judge not passage in Matthew 7. He says this, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a plank, uh, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The purpose of removing the plank from our own eye is so that we can remove the speck from our brother's eye. So we have to first expose our own darkness to be real about our own sin so that we aren't hypocrites and so that we can clearly remove the speck from our brother's eye. 
Once we remove our log, we can help free others from the sin that entraps them. James 5 verse 20 says, Whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Just as we're called to individually take the plank out of our own eye before getting to the speck in someone else's, we also need to do that corporately, starting with our own house, the church. We have no voice to speak into culture, to a culture that devalues marriage, if our church is characterized by unbiblical divorces. We can't talk about how Jesus is good news to those who are hurting if we're sheltering abusers within our own church. We need to start with ourselves and be honest about our own sin and failures because forgiveness is real and then we have a voice to speak into others. It's also important to say that the call to call out to expose darkness does not give us a license to become the sin police. I think if you spend any amount of time online, on social media, you know the person who thinks that it is their God-given job to call out every other single person who is wrong about anything. That's not what God is calling us to. This is relational. Exposing darkness starts with people that we know, who we've earned the right to speak into their lives. It starts with the humility of examining our own hearts first. And it takes the the spirit-filled humility of guarding ourselves. When we go to expose darkness, we need to realize that we are still susceptible. We can fall back into our old ways. We need the spirit to protect us. We need to be honest about our own motives. Are you watching that movie so that you can talk with people in culture? Or are you watching things that are gratifying the desires of your own flesh? We need to be real about our own heart and and invite people to call us out. But with all of those cautions aside about the dangers and ways of exposing darkness, we need to call sin, sin. We need to call to shine light on darkness because there's actual power in Jesus to transform lives. Look at verse 14. It's saying that uh, after the darkness should be exposed to light. Verse 14 says, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ is perfect light. He has the power to raise the dead to life. He has the power to bring from death to life, from darkness to light. So when we call out sin, when we shine light on things that are unjust or don't reflect the ways of God, we're not just saying, like, do better, try harder. We're saying Jesus actually changes lives. So let's have the boldness to bring darkness to light and ask Christ to work. So thirdly, our third point, because you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light, 
by exercising wisdom from the Spirit. Exercising wisdom from the Spirit. We see a series of contrasts in verse 15 through 21, culminating in the idea of a Spirit-filled life. Look at the first one in verses 15 through 17. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Children of light are supposed to live lives marked by wisdom, intentionality, and and knowing God's will. Instead of living foolish and wasteful lives. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is taking the clear truths about God's character that we find in his word and putting them into action in our everyday lives when things are difficult. How do we cultivate wisdom? We read God's word, particularly the the wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. Read one a day and meditate on it. The book of James is New Testament wisdom literature. It has five chapters. Read one every day before you start work. The book of Psalms teaches us how to have emotional... It does a lot of things. But it shapes our emotions because it, it pours out the full range of human emotion before God. So it gives us wisdom of how to have emotions with others and before God. Job and Ecclesiastes show us how to be wise when everything in the world isn't working the way that it's supposed to. Wisdom begins with fearing God. And God delights in granting wisdom to those who ask. And also, we gain wisdom from being in relationship with other Christians in different ages and stages of life. People who know Jesus and have seen different experiences in their life help us see beyond what we have in our limited view and have a richer experience of God's world. Wisdom seeks wise counselors. And wisdom lives intentionally. That's what Paul means when he says making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We don't know how long we have. Life is a gift and it goes by fast. Our lives are not our own. They belong to God. So instead of letting them pass us by, we should structure each day towards pursuing the fruit of light. When you're asking whether you should be doing something, just ask yourself, is it good? Is it right? Is it true? So we build into our days, our weeks, our months, our years, Rhythms and structures of rest and reflection and service and study and community. And while we're very intentionally crafting all these things, we also don't want to hold too tightly to our own plans and schedules. God is going to redirect us. We cannot be the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan who's so focused on his own agenda that he's unwilling to help someone that God has placed right before him in need. So do you leave time in your own agenda to be interrupted by God? Paul continues with another contrast in verse 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice he doesn't say that drinking itself is sinful. He says that drunkenness is something we cannot settle for when we have something better in the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness makes it so you can't live life intentionally. It lowers your inhibitions. It makes it difficult for you to exercise wisdom. You're more susceptible to fall back into darkness 
And you're not able to live on mission as a light where God has placed you. Whether it's alcohol, uh, overuse of alcohol, or drugs, or other things that we use to numb us from God's calling on our life. God says, there's a better way. The Spirit will fill you. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, every Christian has the Holy Spirit living and working inside of her. Helping to convict her of sin, to make her more like Jesus, and, and to gift her for the work of building up the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom. The Spirit helps us to craft intentional lives and, and plans to honor God. And the Spirit makes us uh, willing to have our plans altered. Because he's going to bring people and situations across our path that demand our attention. The Holy Spirit helps us know God's will by making God's word alive to us. And the Spirit reminds us of God's unconditional love for us in Christ. So that we don't need to escape from reality with drugs or alcohol or Netflix. But we can... We can face the goodness of a reality where we are fully known and truly loved. And the Spirit enables us to relate rightly to each other. That's what Paul highlights in verses 19 through 21. Look with me now. He says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a lot in these verses that we could say, but just to quickly highlight a couple things. We're called to sing. Spirit-filled people sing. We sing to God, but we sing for the sake of each other. Your singing matters to the person worshiping next to you. The, the, the example that I have in my mind, at my last church, I was preaching, and when I, when I preached, I got to help pick some of the songs. And I picked a song by a band I like called City of Light uh, that talked about uh, not my will but yours be done, submitting our will to God the Father. And the woman who was singing it that week had a job interview for a position that she really wanted and found out that she didn't get the job. And I remember her singing through like almost tears on Sunday, this beautiful song about submitting to God's will, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not in a theoretical way, but in a very actual way. It was like in the midst of her real life. You don't know what's going on with the people next to you. But the richness of truth in song is a gift to your neighbor, even as it is praise to God. That's why we fill ourselves with good, rich, scripturally true music. You guys are going to hear my sermon. Hopefully it makes sense to you. Maybe you remember one thing I said, but you're not going to leave quoting something I said. But you might have a song that we sang stuck in your head for the rest of the week. Song gets beyond the head down into the heart. And it helps us remember the riches of God's word. 
So while, like, take a minute, make a playlist of songs that help you see the beauty of God. Uh, songs that remind you of the truth of the gospel. And sing them. Remind each other of God's goodness. And it also says to have grateful hearts, giving thanks always and for everything. When the Spirit is living inside of us, when we remember that we once were darkness and now we are a light, we have no choice but to be thankful, even for the hard things, even for the difficult things. We're a people marked by gratitude because the Holy Spirit has changed our hearts. And yet thankfulness takes practice. It takes intentionality. For many of us, it doesn't come naturally. So make a practice of thanking God for big things and for ordinary everyday things. Thank God for the people that he's placed in your life, the ones who bring joy into your life, and thank God for the people that drive you nuts because he has a purpose and he's using them in your life. He loves them. And thankfulness will help you love them too with the eyes of Christ. And lastly, it, it talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Andrew will touch on this more next week as it relates to the passage on marriage. But regardless of how this gets worked out, submitting in our different relationships, the thing that we can take for sure is that we're called in Philippians 2 to have the other-focused, self-sacrificial humility of Jesus. Jesus didn't hold on to his privilege and power, but laid it down, taking the form of a servant, counting others more significant than himself. And we're called to do the same. So submitting to one another means humbly seeing others as more significant than yourself. And spirit-filled submission means that you see that the Holy Spirit isn't just working in you. You're not the only one with answers and ideas, but the Holy Spirit is working in all of us. So we can submit our will in our way, humble ourselves, and have a posture of service instead of entitlement in how we relate to each other. So how do we wrap all of this up? We see that God is present in every step of our call to walk as children of light. It is God the Father who calls us his children, who gives us his law which is shaped on his character so that we know what's pleasing to him. It's Jesus who died for us and rose to new life who makes us light as we have union with him. And it's the Holy Spirit who fills us so that we don't have to walk alone, so that we have resurrection power living inside of us. So when things seem dark and heavy, remember that in Christ you are light. When sin tempts you back into darkness, remember that in Christ you are light. When it seems like you're getting nowhere with your neighbor or your adult child who doesn't follow Jesus, remember that the light of Christ can actually raise the dead to life. By grace, our Savior calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Would you pray with me? God, thank you for making us light, for loving us so well, being patient with us. Help us to distinguish light from darkness by the wisdom of your spirit. Help us to be a faithful presence in the midst of darkness. And God, I pray that you would make us quick to confess our sins, our faults, our failures, to bring them to you and to each other in repentance so that the light of Christ might shine all the more brightly. Thank you. Thank you for being a God who is 100% all the time light. We pray this in Jesus' name, by your Spirit. Amen.